game was in Arizona. We had this player on our team, his name was Justin Durant, a really good player for us, 10-year veteran, African-American guy. Really, really, I, I love him to death, uh, a, a real pro. And our starting linebacker, Sean Lee, got hurt. And so Justin has to play a lot more than he typically would. And Justin, one of the things that I do with our players is when they come off the field, I try to look and look at them. Hmm. I try to almost look everybody in the eye, see kind of where they are hmm. in the game. And if guy needs a little encouragement, encourage him, hey, keep it going, you know, just have this interaction. And Justin Duran is playing linebacker for us and doing a great job. He's making a lot of plays. He's making a lot of tackles. But as he's coming off the field, he's blank. Devoid of any emotion. He's just like this. Which presumably is not normal, right? It's just not normal at all. I mean, he makes this great tackle, comes off the field, head down. I'm like, huh, this ain't good. So try to connect with him, try to interact with him. He's just... And so this goes on. We, We win the game. We fly back. I see him the next day. He's like this. He just ain't right. And so finally, a couple of days later, I'm like, hey, Justin, come on, let's visit. Let's visit. Tell me what's going on here. You're not not yourself. He said, Coach, this has been hard on me. This has been really hard. What what do you mean? This whole kneeling thing? So my dad was a Marine for 25 years. He and I talked two weeks ago that I was going to kneel. I was going to kneel. He fought for our country, and he comes back, and he still feels this inequality, these inequities that we're dealing with. And it's your job. You're you're privileged to be in the position you are, to have the platform. I want you to kneel. I told him I was going to kneel. And then we got together as a team, and he didn't kneel. I said, what did your dad say when when you talked to him? Granted, Justin's 31 years old, a grown man. He says, Coach, I haven't been able to call him. I haven't been able to talk to him. I got to try to figure this out. I really don't know what to do. And so he wasn't the same guy the rest of the year, and he retired after the season. That was Dallas Cowboys head football coach Jason Garrett speaking very candidly about one of the toughest times really in the NFL's history, the fall of 2017, and America's favorite sport, a billion-dollar industry, was suddenly in the crosshairs of a political showdown. I'm Jeff Skinwade, and you are listening to Radios and Tunnels, a podcast in which we take deep dives on things such as film, music, sports, anything you can think of in our popular modern culture. And today we are going to take a deep dive into an NFL locker room during a time of adversity. When Justin Durant played linebacker for the Cowboys, I always enjoyed going into the locker room and seeking him out and asking his opinion on the latest record he was listening to or what he'd been up to, if he had tried any good restaurants in Dallas lately, because he was an engaging, approachable, likable guy. But I hadn't talked to him in well over a year when I heard that clip. Our buddy Bobby Belt, who's a producer for the NFL Network, sent it over to me, Ben, and KT. And the second I heard it, I was blown away. Number one, just how candidly that Garrett was speaking. And then number two, I immediately empathized with Justin in a way that I couldn't possibly have before. I started thinking about the weight of what he had to go through. That's a heavy story. I started thinking about how heavy it was for all of those players, black, white, whatever their background was, to have all of America looking at them, demanding that they do the right thing. And we don't even know what the hell the right thing to do was in the first place. This is a wide-ranging discussion on locker room culture, on politics, on how to raise kids. We even talk about the amazing Netflix series, When They See Us, which deals with the horrific problems in America's jail system. And due to the nature of the topic, it gets heavy really quick. Okay, so Justin Durant, long career in the NFL, hell of a linebacker. 
and always viewed as a great locker room dude. You think that's an accurate description of you? Um, if that's what they're saying, I guess I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, every locker room's different. Every sport's different. Baseball clubhouses are unique, and basketball locker rooms are smaller, and NFL locker rooms are so unique because you guys are segregated by a lot of different things, right? Positions, mm-hmm. side of the ball, background, all those different things. So walking in an NFL locker room is a really unique experience for a media person, right? But mm-hmm. you were always incredibly approachable at your time here with the Cowboys. And after hearing the the Jason Garrett clip that we played at the beginning of this podcast, I just the wheels really started turning in my head and really thinking about what a locker room is like when you have to go through some sort of adversity. And I would imagine everyone freaking out over that whole thing and the president's commenting on it and teams have to come together and players have their own individual feelings. I imagine that was one of the most sort of uh, tumultuous times in your career. Uh, most definitely. Um, I think it was it was tough on everybody because, um, like, you know, you understand how management looks at it. You understand how, you know, some of the coaches look at it. Everybody's put in a kind of a tough position. You know, all the players are talking, you know, with, with their friends and, you know, with everybody. We just had open conversations a lot. And um, I know that it was it was tough on everybody. And then, um, you know, we had certain guys who wanted to do certain things. And uh, it was it was just a tough time, man. But I, I try to see things from all perspectives at all times. So I try not to, to just think about how I feel, but how, you know, how the coach has to approach 90 guys with 90 different views on things. So um, it was it was definitely a tough time for me. It was rough, um, you know, for a lot of people at the same time. So um, like I said, it was a, a real sensitive situation at the time, and we chose to go about it how we did. When you look back at that, how did you – How did you, you know, the way uh, Coach Garrett described you walking off the field, that's a pretty intense description, you know, and I and – I, so how did that impact you, say, not even immediately after, but for the month after that, the remainder of the season? Did that really stay with you? Um, it stayed with me every day because um, I, I still think about it. I really do. Um, it was probably one of the, the toughest decisions I made in my life, and I'm not sure if I did the right thing or I did the wrong thing, you know. Um, so I, I think about it, you know, for my kids. You know, um, I think about it for my family. Um, like I said, it, it, it's not something that's going to go away. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I don't play anymore, but I still have to live with that time in my life. So um, it's tough, man. Honest with you. I don't. I don't mean this to sound obtuse or anything, but do you just did you feel added pressure as an African American playing the sport that you play with the stage that you're on? I mean, how would you kind of compare? That supposed to like uh, a white guy from Iowa that you know plays on the line or whatever. Like how how di- how different is that for you in that situation? Um, I wouldn't say that. Well, I mean, of course, it's pressure because we, you know, we like to say that we don't we don't watch TV. You know, we don't pay attention to the news. We don't, you know, we try to block out all the outside noise, which is it's easy to say, but it's really hard to do, especially in a, you know, a situation like that. So, um, uh, it was, it was a lot of pressure. Um, but I put the pressure on myself also. It wasn't just like, you know, everybody's talking to me and telling me what I should be doing or, you know, giving me how they feel about the situation and trying to make it way extra on me. It was just, you know, that's just how I talk to my family period. You know, we just have 
conversations about, you know, things that are going on in the world. And um, like I said, it was, it was a lot of pressure, but it wasn't necessarily from everybody else. It was pressure on myself to do what I felt was right. Right. Yeah. And, no. Uh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I'm good. Go ahead. I mean, I think the other thing about that is that that situation had sort of subsided and then for political purposes, it came back. Mm-hmm. And that's what made the whole thing so, you know, confounding to me uh, mm-hmm. is it didn't have to be like that. Someone wanted it mm-hmm. to be like that for political yeah. gain. And yeah. then it and then it put added pressure on a lot of you guys. I mean, everybody of all races and all backgrounds in that locker room because you you want to pull together as a team. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're in the day and age now where players have a quote unquote individual brand. And especially yeah. in football, you guys have a limited time because of the injury rate. There's a lot of people pulling in a lot of different directions. And in the meantime, you're all trying to not commit penalties and pull in the same direction to win games. The NFL locker room is far and away the most unique in that regard to me. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. You got, like I said, you got 90 guys from, uh, you know, 30 different parts of the country, of the world, period. You know, every, every type of background. And we all have to find some type of common ground to come together and try to win some games. So um, we try to, you know, have everybody's feelings, you know, put everything on, on, at the top of the list, you know, to try to make everybody comfortable. Um, it's hard. And you have to, like I said, you have to try to see it from all perspectives. But at the same time, we realized what was going on at the time. Like you said, it was for political gain. So you try not to give people power in those situations. Right. But at the same time, it looks funny that he's saying these things, basically taunting us, you know. So it was, it was, it was difficult, man. How difficult was it for you guys to come to a consensus of how y'all were going to – because that was a Monday night game. That made it even extra – and also, I mean, I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but Arizona doesn't have the best history of, you know, the, the way things hand, are handled socially there. It's not not good. Uh, so I would imagine that was even more difficult to try to get everybody pulling in the same direction. How difficult was that for Coach Garrett and for you guys to feel like y'all were doing – the thing that needed to be done. Like I said earlier, I, I felt like it was, I know it was tough on him. And um, that's why I, I respect what he said, especially what he did after when he, when he called me into his office and we sat and, you know, talked man to man. And it gave me a, a different, I always respect my coaches, but it gave me a different level of respect just to, you know, to have that conversation with, I'm not going to put everything out that we talked about, but right. um, it was just, you know, it, it made me understand even more the position that, that he was in that the team was in and, you know, what ultimately came down to the decision that we made to, to do what we did on that night. But uh, just as, as far as the players, we had um, we had a couple meetings with, uh, you know, the leaders on the team, the, the vet guys, um, some of the coaches. Um, it, was, it was tough, man. <laughs> Everybody, you know, had their, their opinion on what they wanted to do and what they felt was right and, you know, how it would affect the team, how it would affect uh, the fans, how it would affect – you know, just everybody. So, um, like, like, it was probably the the most difficult situation I've been in. You know, and as far as being a player, and it had nothing to do with football, which <laughs> just makes no sense at all. It doesn't make any sense, and it also it kind of shines a light on this moment in time we're at, where and social media has exacerbated all this, and I just I think it's so weird that. Two massive news outlets can have completely different programming. What does that tell you about the state of the world? And it's like completely different advertisers, depending on what that programming is. It's it's absolutely nuts uh, yeah. when you step back and look at all that. But 
how do you feel the direction like you've got kids that you're raising? How do you mm-hmm. feel like the direction of this thing is currently going? How do people move to a point where they can actually talk through their differences and not turn it into a war? I'm not sure that it can happen, man, because everybody likes to talk and nobody likes to listen. Yeah. So it's like um, it's going to be difficult. I mean, um, you know, I try to explain that to my kids. I got kids of color, of course, and uh, she's getting to that age where she's, you know, noticing certain things and, I have to just explain certain things that that are going to happen in her life that that could possibly happen. You know, she's uh, you know I'm lucky enough to be have played a long time, so that you know I, I could put her in uh, the best situations I feel possible. But a lot of people don't have you know that luck. So um, I don't I don't know, man. I just think it's going to be uh, a problem that we've had forever, which will continue for at, at least the foreseeable future. Well, this may be a little too abstract, but what would be the way? Well, I'll I'll ask it to you like this, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, There's a there's a show on Netflix called When They See Us, and it's about a story. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Okay, then let's go there. So. So, Justin, that happened when I was a senior in high school. I grew Mm -hmm. up in a suburb here in Dallas. You know, I would say my high school was probably 65 percent white. But Mm -hmm. that's the time when. Uh, political rap is happening and it's sort of opening my mind to things. I'm thinking about things differently and I'm seeing things differently. And that happened when I was a senior in high school. And I remember it. I remember all that. Uh, It kind of dissipated after a while. You know, it's like, I don't know where it went and I quit thinking about it. But one of the things that watching this series has reminded me of is people like to talk about these issues and go, well, that was a long time ago, but these things keep happening. It's cycles. It's the same thing over and over. It's why the kneeling thing all came up in the first place. It's like, man, we're 30 years removed from that and what's different. And so as we keep playing out these cycles over and over and over, I'm an optimistic person. I want things to get better, but I I don't know how to teach my kids what they need to know or how you're going to have to teach your kids what, what, what they need to know. It's like as a person that is raising kids and wants this thing to get better, how do you kind of educate your kids or how do you look at this and go, hey, we're another 30 years down the road and nothing really seems to be changing? Or am I oversimplifying that? Do you feel like progress is being made? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a, I'm an optimist person also, but I'm also a realist at the same time. So like you said, when you see something like that that happened 30 years ago and things like that still going on, you know, um, it's it's hard to be optimistic. So it's like uh, obviously it's a something that's going to continue to happen. Uh, I don't know what exactly can be done um, to to make the change. I, I don't, I'm just be honest with you. I don't have the answers. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I want I want uh, you know everybody to. It, it sounds good to to look at everybody and not not be afraid if you see somebody of color or to not think that they're dangerous just because their certain skin tone or uh, in anything like that, you know, um, and like I said, man, this, it's been going on for hundreds of years, man. So, um, I don't know if, I don't know if it'll ever be as, as good as I would like it to be, especially in my lifetime. Right. Cause we've come, I mean, I guess we've made some type of progress, but it's still far from where it needs to be. I think that was sort of like the overwhelming thing that struck me is like I'm, I've always kind of believed, hey, we are making progress. And as the older generation dies off, some of the bigotry dies off. 
But then I'm sitting here looking at it going, man, look at how everyone reacted to people just doing the American thing of being about, you know, our rights. I mean, how you can't look at it. You can't divide people. We're all Americans. Like these are the things that when people went to war, that this is the concept that they fought for. Why are we dividing this into a racial concept? All Americans should all be fought for equally by everybody. But it's 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 an argument. I don't understand how you can love the flag and not understand why people are standing up for rights. That's the whole thing that this country is supposed to be about. And you have yeah. a dad that was in the military. And so that's, to me, an extra unique wrinkle or layer to all this that you have to contend with. Yeah. That was probably – that was the thing that, that really, really hurt me. You know, um, my dad served for a while, and um, – I talked to him uh, probably before the game, and you know I was I was setting what I was going to do, and uh, I had a meeting and I talked with uh, some of the upper upper management people, and uh, we decided that that was what we were going to do, and um, ultimately I didn't. So um, I'm sure I know that that hurt him. You know, um, I talk, of course I you know I talked to him um, probably a couple days later. And, um, you know, we sat and had a long conversation about it. And he said, you know, he still was proud of me. He loved me and everything. Um, he didn't change, you know, any of his feelings about me. But it was it was something I really wanted to do, especially for him. And um, I didn't do it. He, so um, it, it was tough. You know, there, there's always been correlations, whether they're fair or not, between a football team and a military group, Right. The football field is a battlefield, and we're going to war and 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 getting guys to pull together and chain of command and a lot of these things. So, I mean, on one level, I would imagine your dad understands that idea. I mean, he yeah. he lived that idea. It's very very difficult to break rank when you are committed to an ideal. Which when you go play for a team, it's the same thing. When you join the military, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just so much more complex. For African Americans, it's just yeah. way, way more difficult for you guys. Oh, for sure, for sure. And going back to your point about um, you know uh, us trying to make change, I just think about you said uh, and the older generation, you know, kind of dying off and things like that. But the older generation is what birthed and raised the newer generation, right? So they're you know they're instilling in them the same ideals and the same beliefs. So I mean, it's it's hard to change something you were raised with for a very very long time. So uh, I don't I don't know how that's going to change. I guess they have to do it individually um, to try to to look at things a, a different way from what they were taught. But that's hard. I, I look at my own situation, and you know my my folks grew up in the South, and my dad talks about the first time he saw the images of the civil rights movement when law enforcement were returning hoses on African Americans, and mm-hmm. that's it. If if you if you're an empathetic person, that that impacts you. That, yeah, that sure. moves you, you know, and so me and my sister are probably more progressive than my parents were, and hopefully our kids will be more progressive than we are and all those kinds of things. But one of the things that struck me, and I really want to ask you this, how old are your kids? I have a daughter who's seven, and I have one that just turned one on uh, the 28th. Okay, so this is probably, my, my kids are, I'm older than you, my kids are 14, 11, but I was okay. trying to figure out when I should let my kids watch when they see us, Right. Because there's kids in the show in real life that went to jail at the age of that my daughter's at right now. 
And, and I figure the whole idea of my 14-year-old daughter being interrogated by the police and sent to jail. And it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. But my son, at one point, my 11-year-old son comes walking in. And it's during the fourth episode, which is the worst, the hardest one to watch. And a, 14, a 16-year-old kid is in adult prison. And my son starts watching like 10 minutes of this, and he's sobbing. It's like... Okay, you need to uh, you need to go to the next room, Desmond. I love you, buddy, but we can't do this. But I had this flashback, Justin, to when I was a kid and I was about his age, and Roots was being shown on uh, television. And I remember the way people were talking about it, and I remember Levar Burton as Kuta Kenta. I remember all this stuff, and I remember the feelings and the way people were talking about all this. And that's when it really struck me. I was like, that was in the seventies, and we're still doing this crap. Like yeah, it's it's not really different. So so you know where when would you when would you allow your kids? What is a good age for your kids to sit down and engage with something that's that real and that's heavy that directly impacts them because of how they're going to have to grow up in this country? Um, I say for my daughter, um, probably you know twelve, <laughs> right. Right around uh, the middle school, you know, age. I think that those guys were, you know, they were they were young at the time. Um, I think that certain stuff, of course, you have to be sensitive about, but certain stuff you have to be real about. And um, I think that that's something I would probably show her right around, you know, sixth, seventh grade, um, because it, it can happen. You know, a, a lot of kids have been, you know, wrongly accused and, and put in prison for things that they didn't do at at you know the the age of teenagers and stuff like like it just it, it really doesn't make any sense and just because of the color of their skin they come up with a whole fabricated story and pin it on them and put them in jail for you know extended amounts of time and it's sad and um, I just have to let her know that things like this are possible. Did you ever consider going into the military yourself or did your dad ever talk to you about that? Uh, no, not much. Um, I just you know and I was. Yes, I was really good at football, so I right. didn't think about it at all. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of the next question is what, you know, as you, your your professional career is over and now you can step back and look at it, what has football meant to you? Oh, man. Um, it's created so many opportunities for me and my family. Um, I, I love playing. Um, I just love the uh, – just the, the feeling of, you know, just feeling the crowd's energy. You know, you make a play, everybody's excited, man. I think that's probably the thing that I miss the most, aside from the locker room, is just, you know, making a big tackle on third down and, you know, everybody's going wild on the sidelines and you look in the stands and everybody's jumping up and down. Um, it's hard to to probably – I'm probably never uh, receive a thrill like that anymore, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't do roller coasters and all my stuff like that. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, it's – that's probably the main thing, man. Um, I felt like I had a I had a really solid career, man. I loved, you know, every every place I played, every every teammate that I had, man. I don't regret anything about it. And um, it's, it just like I said, it's afforded me the opportunity to do great things for me and my family, and um, I was just proud to be a part of it. It's so unique too because there's so many personalities in a football locker room. As you look back at your career, was there ever a year? or a specific team where you felt like, man, that was the best group of guys and we all really connected in unique ways? Is there one that jumps out to you? Ooh, um, uh, the 14 team in Dallas, man, um, that was that was one of the best that I was on. Um, just, you know, how we, how we approached the game, 
think everybody approached it the right way. Everybody had the right attitude, man. And um, we had some unfortunate things happen that I'm not going to speak of. But um, that was a, a great year. Um, and my rookie year uh, down in Jacksonville, um, just the, the way that they took me in and Jacksonville gave me that opportunity, um, that was just – it was um, – it was that was my first outing. I was like, uh, man, these some grown men out here. You know, um, <laughs> and I got a, they got I busted my nose uh, the first day. We were doing Oklahoma drills. Like it was, it was like really raw. And I love that energy that we had. We we had a great team that year. Also, um, every year was was definitely important for me. But I think that my rookie year, that that fourteen team in Dallas, and probably the uh, twenty eleven team in Detroit. What is uh, what? What takes up most of your time these days? Oh, man, uh, getting the kids ready for school, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, changing diapers. Um, I'm really just uh, just blessed I had the op- like, I-, I get the chance to spend time with the youngest one that I didn't get uh, with my oldest one. Right. Um, like, I missed birthday parties. I missed the first bar- birthday party. I missed the first steps. Mm. I missed a whole lot of stuff, you know, and um, luckily – like I said, I, I, when I first uh, retired, I said, I'm going to take a year off. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to focus on, you know, my other endeavors, anything like that. I just want to sit back, relax, and enjoy my family. And um, I've done that. So now we're uh, we're packing up. We're moving to Atlanta right now. Um, we have some, some other opportunities waiting for us. Atlanta's a really cool town. It's uh, yeah, sure. okay, in a lot of ways, it's the hub of the South. You know, it's it brings a lot of different people together in a lot of different ways. What do you see Absolutely. yourself uh, doing in, let's say, ten years from now? Because you're still a young Ooh. man, Justin. Am I young? Yes. I I don't think so, man. You know that league put uh, extra thirty years on. <laughs> is um, that what it is? <laughs> I'm probably uh, about sixty three, uh, body wise, right now. Sixty three in football years. Oh yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, man. Uh, Next, hurting. You know, backs tight. You know all that type of stuff. Right. But um, you know, uh, it was it was my decision, and uh, you know, I, like I said, I don't regret anything about it. But uh, ten years. Um. Well, right now, I'm working with um, with a, a management company, we're doing some uh, some things on the music side. Um, I'm about to uh, probably open up a studio when I get down there. All right. And, um. Yeah. You know. Um. Of course. Uh. You know, the music business is changing from day to day. And um, we have to keep up with the times. But I don't know. I want to see if we can establish actually some real music and love in the music. So um, we're trying to, to get that going, man. Um, like I said, I got a company with um, my guy, Derek Faulkner, who I went to college with. Um, about to, he was just waiting on me to, to get done and waiting on me to make the move to Atlanta so we can really get things rolling. So um, I'm moving out of here this weekend, man. That doesn't surprise me one bit because that's how you and I kind of hit it off is we're both big music heads. In yeah, fact, sure. you know, uh, I'm coming at you with the first episode and I'm bringing in the, you know, the sledgehammer of socioeconomic and racial issues. But we're going to do podcasts <laughs> in the future where we're just talking music and stuff. So uh, it doesn't yeah, surprise I'm, me. I'm sure of that. Yeah, this was, this was a little too. We started off a little too heavy. We can get light on the next one. No, no, no. We're going to get light on the next one. But, man, I just – I hadn't talked to you in a while, and when I heard that Jason Garrett clip, it reminded me of why I liked you so much. Just your character, your thoughtfulness, the way you view the world. 
you know, I just really appreciate that about people. And it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that you're going to do uh, go into the music business. Is there anything currently that you've been listening to that you're like, hey, man, you got to give this some burn. This is where it's at. Um, I, honestly, man. Um, well, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Um, this guy uh, Benny the Butcher from Buffalo. Okay, he's bringing back the uh, the '90s uh, kind of feel a little bit. Kind of got like some Wu Tang feel to it. All right, a little bit of uh, the locks, man. He's hard. Like he, it's just like real gritty, real raw beats, man. Um, his last uh, the album he put out just now, I think a couple weeks ago, was called um, The Plugs I Know. That's probably one of the best rap albums I've heard in a long time. Okay. Um, also, you know, of course, I listened to uh, the Tyler, the Creator. I like his, his latest album. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really a big fan of his, but um, this has a little different kind of N.E.R.D., um, a little bit of, you know, Kanye stuff to it. So it sounds, it sounds it's pretty cool, man. It's cool. Okay, well, that's a beautiful thing. I'm going to give you a recommendation, and the next time we'll talk, we'll see if you like that. I got some friends down in Austin called the Black Pumas. And, Black Pumas? Uh, yep, and it's like uh, okay. kind of like a psychedelic retro soul sound. Okay, I think you'll I think you'll dig that. I think you'll uh, you'll have fun with that. And um, it's interesting, you know, you talk about that '90s hip hop. I got a podcast in the can with the Large Professor that worked with Nas and Come Main Sort. Yeah, man. Hey, we're doing big wow. things on radios and tunnels. We're I trying see to that. trying to get wow. to the and that's hey and and you're one of the first people I wanted to talk to on this bad boy. That's uh, that's how much I respect you, my man. So, my man. hey, dude, thank you for the time. Thank you for getting deep with us early on, and uh, I'll have you back on after the move, and uh, we'll talk music next time. Yes, sir. Hey, I appreciate you, man. Much love. Huge thanks to Justin Durant for being my very first guest on Radios and Tunnels. And as you could tell there at the very end, we have all kinds of cool things planned for you. So we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast so as soon as it drops, you're going to get your ears on it. Don't forget to listen to the Ben and Skin Show three to seven weekdays on 105.3 The Fan. And if you are so inclined, I'm at Skin Wade on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Thanks to KT for producing. And as always, thanks to the Jizza for the inspiration.